thank you um so let's start hi hi everyone thank you for joining today and um it's it's actually a pleasure to have all of you here at the conclave uh, my name is venkatesh as i said before i'm a, um i'm the founder and uh, president of the swatantrata so um swatantrata is um uh, a policy and grassroots advocacy organization where we focusing on advancing choice and opportunity for the people especially the ones who is actually um on the marginalized and um uh, so our idea is what kind of ideas policies that can actually enables the people to build a decent life with dignity and um some of the ideas we actually believe and um economic economic activity is one of the foundational ideas we believe in and people should have a um, uh, fundamental freedom to lead their life um with certain rights and also responsibilities and also we believe in um to um embrace the um, economic greater economic activity and productivity uh, we believe in open market system that is actually uh, protected by the rule of law and um and the state that actually um restricted by the constitution and um so since last 6 months we've been actually um exploring ideas these ideas and also more ideas so some of the ways what we do is um uh through digital activism and also through grassroots advocacy so we want to bring some of these ideas to the people to the masses where they can understand what kind of ideas that really actually uh make an impact which sometimes people not able to see it directly so we wanted to actually elaborate it and see it in a more fundamental way and explain them uh how these kind of ideas can actually impact their lives um in, to build a, a greater life um to advance the human tradition so as a part of it we actually do various kind of activities um youth parliament is one of our uh, flagship program where we actually um uh bring together various um, ideological groups uh that believes in a different kind of ideas and bring uh trying to change the political system how uh, politics works what kind of ideas actually improve the outcomes of the politics as many people see as a politics as a big problem and um we wanted to address along with some other ideas so youth parliament program is one of our flagship and we actually um had a leadership bootcamp yeah. where we focusing on policy and also leadership and also technology um and sustainable development goals how uh, youth can actually contribute and we also have a policy conclave with um uh, some of the speakers like uh, Sriram Kari who is actually well known journalist Nalamo Chakravarti who is actually grassroots advocate and also um an entrepreneur so um as we are all actually stuck in um this pandemic we were actually thought how we can actually bring these ideas during this time so uh this e policy conclave is the one of the idea we come up with we wanted to actually bring um leading scholars leading experts and actually bring the, their ideas and how they actually seeing it um from their perspective and what kind of ideas we can what kind of ideas that are actually working what is not working so um through this we wanted to explore what kind of policies that can actually um consider as the best practices this time what kind of ideas and uh, government decisions actually working well for the people what what kind of ideas are not working how we can actually improve the conditions right now 
So today we have um, one of a good friend and also strong supporter our our work from CCS Bona and um, she actually works as a director of research at um, Center for Civil Society, which is actually leading um, uh, liberal market liberal think tank. And also, uh, she also worked with various organizations like uh, UKI Commission and also other organizations that deals with uh, public distribution system. She um, especially worked um, certain areas where poor can actually benefit through various policies. And our focus was very, very interesting. Um, so um, we would like to hear from her um, how uh, what kind of work center for civil society do because it's it's one of the leading um, think tank in india and um, what is a public policy what kind of impact public policy creates and is public policy is really really matters before she go into um, uh, best policy practices during the era of the pandemic uh, here you go bona Thank you, Venkatesh. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I've watched uh, Venkatesh grow from an alum of CCS, I think, into starting this incredible organization, which I'm very excited about. Uh, thank you all for being here. It's my pleasure and honor. Um, uh, Venkatesh, you've thrown a lot of questions at me for uh, 30 minutes. I'm going to try uh, and do as much justice as I can. Uh, I'm actually going to uh, spend less time speaking so that we can have more interaction. Okay, unmuted. Um, so that we can have more questions and interaction. Uh, for the question answer session, I'm wondering what the best way to do it. Uh, Venkatesh, will you be moderating or how should we do that? Uh, they can actually uh, write them. Right on the chart, and I will actually ask you. Yes, please. That would be great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, okay, so a little bit about me, and uh, well, mostly about the organization I represent. Uh, I've been associated with Center for Civil Society for uh, on and off for about two decades now. Uh, I like to say that I'm the prime example of catch them young and watch them grow. Uh, I came to CCS as an intern. In fact, I was uh, one of CCS's first interns. Uh, and uh, many decades later, well, uh, two decades later, uh, I run research and policy engagement at Center for Civil Society. Uh, CCS has worked uh, in several different areas over the last two decades. Our fundamental belief is that uh, there are multiple ways to bring about social change. And one big way to bring about social change is through the instrument of public policy, meaning the entire universe of laws, regulations, um, rules, uh, public uh, investments, uh, interventions, schemes, etc, etc, right? Uh, using the offices of government uh, towards certain outcomes. And there is um, a distinct advantage to using public policy as the instrument of change, uh, of, as the instrument of social change, which is that more than any other form of uh, action, policy action is larger, it affects more people at one go. It has uh, uh, it, a certain stick-to-itiveness, meaning that it is relevant across time or for a long span of time. And you're able to correct it uh, again in one stroke and there is a feedback loop that comes in. So a lot of the times when we are activists, uh, what we call direct action, it tends to have more limited scope. There's no, it's, uh, 
uh, I would never argue that it is substitutable but uh, it is important to understand what it serves and what it doesn't. Uh, policy action on the other hand has uh, many of these scale advantages. Um, why is policy relevant? Right? Why should we care about policy? Um, and particularly Venkatesh as you were pointing out that something in politics is broken and can politics really affect outcomes? Does it matter that much? Uh, those kinds of questions are often in our mind, particularly among those who live in cities. We find that people don't go to elections as much, right? They don't cast their vote. So what's going on there? And my sense is that uh, I, I want to tell you a story based uh, sort of an example that we've used uh, in the past at CCS. Uh, how many of you remember the 90s uh, and the filmmaking industry in the 90s? Was particularly true in Bollywood, but also I'm sure in um, you know in the Hyderabad film industry, in the Chennai film industry, in Bangalore. Are you guys familiar with what the world looked like then? Anybody? Priya Lakshmi? Yes, ma'am. What was the world like in the film in industry? The 90s, yeah, in the nineties, in the film industry. Um, I think uh, I remember seeing movies like Bharat Band and uh, movies by Narayan Rao and all. So it was more about activism actually. Sure, the film content was very activist of course. But something else was going on. I don't know if you remember the news headlines all through the 90s. You know it was about Daud Ibrahim and it was about Chota Rajan. And there was a lot of this Bollywood, particularly in Bollywood. I'm from Bombay so I'm a little bit more familiar with the uh, Hindi film industry but I think this was common across film industries in India which is that the underworld had a huge relationship going on with filmmakers they were financing films, they were threatening filmmakers, there was extortion, there was murder it was all a little dark yes. and gloomy, do you guys remember this? Yes, yes I do, I yeah? do. So what was going on? Why were filmmakers that excited? Uh, well, why was the underworld so interested and so enmeshed in the filmmaking industry? Anybody want to venture a guess? No? Okay, here's an interesting fact. Uh, until 2000-2001, filmmaking was not a legitimate industry or business. Uh, and this is per policy, so meaning that the RBI did not uh, allow banks to lend to filmmakers. Uh, the, um, uh, the, the Companies Act did not uh, recognize filmmaking, so you couldn't start a legitimate production house as a registered company. Uh, so largely what was happening was that the financing for filmmaking came from those who had large stacks of cash and were able to pull that kind of cash. Who had that kind of money and uh, that kind of strong arm? It was the underworld. It was the mafia. Uh, and in 2001, the first break uh, came when RBI released these new regulations and notifications saying that from today, banks and um, uh, banks can lend money as well as you can raise money on the equity and debt market. Uh, for filming. Overnight, almost in the next three to four years, you saw the entire landscape of filmmaking change. Uh, you had large companies stepping in, you know, existing corporate houses now started production companies. Uh, existing production companies went legitimate. Some even got listed on the stock exchange. 
um, you had banks stepping up and saying we are also a financier for films and slowly you found that all of this business of you know uh, encounter killings and wiping out the mafia and all of that kind of stuff overnight almost died the mafia and filmmaking became completely irrelevant uh so this is sort of the power of public policy right so in one way it um, such a small little action can have huge ramifications in ways that we didn't even think imaginable and sort of this is why ccs has advocated so strongly for the story of social change through public policy um and in uh, over the last many years i've had the chance to immerse myself in this world and uh, i find it to be as true as the day i started that uh, there is no better instrument or stronger instrument um in a modern uh, republican system than there is a public policy to be able to change both behavior uh, as well as outcomes for uh, for all particularly the poorest uh, so with this sort of uh, uh, backdrop in mind uh, i want to start talking a little bit about the situation that we find ourselves in today right Uh, all of us are holed up at home there is an enforced lockdown there is no end in sight technically tomorrow uh, they were supposed to lift the lockdown but that doesn't seem to be happening uh, the country has been sort of uh, set up into zones uh, and nobody quite knows how to get out of this nobody quite knows until a vaccine or a medicine appears what happens there's a lot of uncertainty in the world people's livelihoods are affected Um, millions of people are stranded away from homes stranded without livelihoods um companies have stopped manufacturing the economy has sort of come to a standstill so a lot of things are going on i'm sure most of you are familiar with all of this so the brief that was given to me by the swatantra uh, team swatantra team was uh, let's talk about best practices in public policy let's talk about how did we find ourselves here and where do we go So I want to submit three big arguments uh, and then invite uh, reactions from all. The first argument is uh, in India one part of why we find ourselves in such a terrible jam more than other places uh, is twofold. A that we are way too poor. Right? Poverty is an ill it is evil and we have not dealt with poverty swiftly enough. So that's argument 1. second is that uh, we have built a large state a huge state machinery the state machinery does everything it runs restaurants and guest houses it runs uh, hospitals and primary health centers it uh, runs public sector enterprises which used to until recently make leather goods uh, it runs airlines it uh, runs defense it tries to do policing it does everything that you can imagine this large state however is missing a philosophy it is missing a set of clean objectives on what the state should do what is the primary purpose of the state in particular in this in uh, relationship to the situation we find ourselves in it has uh, sort of exhibited very poor understanding that the role of the state uh, is in public goods and in you know sort of managing externalities or preventing and well encouraging positive externalities limiting negative externalities and third in creating an environment where the private sector thrives so this is argument number 2 that we have much too large a state but this large state doesn't seem to have an operating philosophy 
and the third argument i want to make is that uh, in health in particular the indian state has invested in too many of the wrong things and too little on the right things what are the wrong things? the wrong things are one direct provision so health care as opposed to public health um it has spent way too much time and energy controlling the activities of private players uh far too less in setting up accountability systems around its own provisioning and three where it should be regulating it has not regulated where it need not regulate it has regulated where it has regulated it is regulated very poorly so these are the three big arguments that i want to make and i want to give you some examples around uh the first argument was around poverty and why um uh poverty is hitting us doubly bad a huge challenge that appeared with the pandemic was uh the swiftness with which it came and the harshness with which it came because there was no end in sight and there's no cure available what does this mean this meant that overnight we closed down borders we refused to allow people to travel but the poorest of the poor uh be it street vendors be it farmers be it migrant and uh, migrant workers and day day laborers they were stuck without any alternative uh, income sources they had to pay rents they had their families far away from them uh and their lives were made miserable overnight now imagine contrast to that i imagine most of us who are middle class uh perhaps even upper middle class the pandemic has affected us but it's an inconvenience it is not life or death yet right uh, we have managed to find ways to opt out just think about this we are having this great conversation here uh, using everything that modern technology has made available whereas there is a large segment of this country that is wondering where their next meal comes from this is anathema it should hurt in our stomach that we have allowed this to happen 70 years after the founding of the republic we have no excuse and think about how much investment we have made in poverty alleviation but never in thinking about what is the path to prosperity for our millions so this is one uh, example of why i argue uh, that the pandemic has hit us far worse and will continue to because we are still very poor the second argument is about the role of the state how large and how small our state is simple things right i was uh, telling you about all the various things that the state does um and all the things that it doesn't do a couple of our colleagues at uh, george mason at the mercatus center released this great paper on state capacity in healthcare um healthcare in india just after the pandemic hit and they find that compared to the rest of the world on the number of doctors that are available in india on the number of healthcare uh, service providers in general on the number of hospital beds on the number of uh, uh, ventilators you know emergency equipment uh, and on the uh, stockpile of medicines we are failing deeply what led us to this surely the state that can run restaurants should have been able to figure out how to run healthcare systems or at least how to manage money spent on healthcare right so every time we have a question of what do we spend our money on instead of thinking from first principles we end up thinking oh here is a pile of money let's apportion it across every single flight of fancy that occurs to us so be it um um controlling uh, bd workers 
or to be it uh, you know sort of uh, uh, running leather factories be it um, putting money under behind loss making airlines we are happy to do all of it but not the big purposes that are um, non negotiable right so the size of our state uh, has both made it very difficult to for it to be agile but at the same time it has also sort of uh, done too many things it should not too few things are the things that it should have the third argument is particularly concerning what we have done uh, in the realm of health two things have happened one is that we've doubled down on investments in healthcare meaning primary health centers district health centers um uh, hospitals large hospitals clinics etc but where it comes to the private sector we have uh, sort of tied their hands in a number of different ways whether it is by having very poor quality environmental regulations whether it is when i say poor quality i don't mean too few i mean the ones that don't get you the outcomes but increase the compliance burden from the private sector tremendously for example the ways in which uh, the pollution state pollution control committees end up regulating hospitals right uh, or for that matter hello little one who's ever baby that was um or whether it was in terms of how labs are set up or whether it uh, it is in terms of um, uh, how we produce drugs we are fighting the rest of the world with the generic drug regime uh, and what happens here uh, there are several or the biggest issue that i have in all of this is how we regulate healthcare personnel we have created guilds of doctors with the medical commission of india we have created guilds by uh, in the nursing profession by not allowing free entry and exit by putting too many barrier require uh, entry barrier requirements uh, in terms of qualifications in terms of certifications in terms of mobility um, and therefore restricted the number of personnel that are coming so in several different ways we have uh, tied the hands of what should naturally have emerged in uh, as service delivery to the people we have continued to spend very large amounts of money for very poor outcomes Uh, the cag audits uh, a few years ago had these very interesting observations where they said that for most of the things in uh, um, public health centers or in uh, government provided health services uh, are either very poor quality they are not customer responsive they uh, they are spending their their uh, expenditure per unit is very high both in terms of patients as well as in terms of size of facility um, all of these kinds of issues keep keep us behind and keep us from dealing with the substantive questions um so this is the sort of environment in which the pandemic has hit us so i often uh, you know sort of try to press home that yes it is true that this is unique yes it is true that this has happened to the world perhaps for the first time since 1918 that we also uh, we assume that uh, uh things like pandemics were a thing of the past and now it would be a very different kind of uh, biological hit if we ever took one um but because we have such poor setup right at the start we are then when we are faced with an emergency uh things don't line up the way they should right so it's worse for us it uh, it takes us far longer to get our act together it takes us far longer to negotiate with the world it takes us far longer to recover um so that's the sort of setup in which uh, uh covid-19 has hit us 
what happened when covid-19 hit us a few things uh, one we were obviously taken by surprise when we should not have been that's lesson one right where was our public health monitoring system the world was already crying force um several people for two months preceding had raised the hackles saying that look china is our neighbor it's spreading everywhere italy by that point had been in lockdown for about 3 weeks we were still not screening people at all we had still not figured out what our strategy was going to be should this uh pandemic come come home um so that was the start of our response we were caught like a deer in headlights i don't blame the government i just think that you need now that we know what will what should we be doing next time one we need to have our monitoring systems up we need to have our red green orange alert systems up so we know something is coming it's so that we we can start preparing for action the second is um what we did with the science of it all right uh when you're dealing with public health you need to have a very strong uh setup that rewards good science and punishes bad uh this Uh, setup is near absent in India. What do I mean by good science and bad science? Simple things, right? When they said you need to start testing people, the first thing that we did um, is to say that only government labs will test. This was step one. Step two, we said that ICMR, which is merely an accrediting body, will now overnight become the regulator for all testing in India. uh there is already mind you a clinical establishments act that exists that is not implemented in most places in this country i think about 11 out of 28 states have actually implemented the clinical establishments act so overnight you set up uh, you gave extraordinary regulatory powers to an agency that had never regulated before that only accredited the third thing that you did you realized that listen government labs we have about 100 120 labs we surely can't test everybody in this country or even can't test based on the limited protocols that we have set up what the hell are we going to do so overnight we said okay we'll invite selectively some private players uh and we started to create a approval system which was controlled by icmr now here is where the bad science comes in we turned around and we said actually if you have to get approval you have to show 100% sensitivity and specificity of the test what do i mean by sensitivity and specificity these are scientific terms it means that every test has to be 100% right when it says positive result meaning that you are positive for covid it has to be 100% right when it says you are negative for covid worldwide not a single regulator insists on 100% accuracy this is science this uh, this is the human body it is uh, there are a hundred different complexities that go in you want to look for averages you want to look for a distribution you want to look for most coverage not necessarily 100% coverage so we went ahead and insisted on bad science as the principle the fourth thing that we ended up uh, doing is then saying that okay we are allowing private sector to run these tests but you have to offer these tests within this price ceiling so we said if you are doing an antibody test it couldn't you couldn't charge more than 1500 if you were doing a, what is called an rt pcr test or the uh, um the the rna test uh it couldn't be more than um 3000 if you were offering either of these tests at home 
you could charge no more than an additional 1500 so that was the 4500 rupee mark that they came up with so you put a price ceiling that was the fourth thing you ended up the fifth thing that happened was the supreme court jumped in and said no no you must offer free tests the private sector must offer free tests for everybody then the government said oh gosh if you say this the private sector will offer tests to nobody so then the supreme court rolled back and said well maybe just to poor people then the government said actually we will issue the guidelines for what this means right because even the government understood that this is a fool's errand okay so this is a fourth thing that we did. the fifth thing that we did is the draconian lockdown right in some way i can understand why we've had a lockdown it makes sense indians were not following and not understanding the magnitude of what was happening we were not quite uh, getting the concept of externalities that was a true of an infectious disease we were not understanding what the uh, social distancing meant and we were certainly not practicing so the government had to do something about it it makes sense to me that they should lock it down the problem is that when you do a lockdown you want continue it forever right you can't close a country of 1.3 billion people forever you can't even close it down for two two months it's ridiculous to try and uh, aim to do that now we did this without giving anybody advance notice without without allowing anybody to prepare and when once you put the lockdown uh, in place it was not clear what you were doing in that time uh, that you had earned so lockdown should have given you some time to prepare to think about what you would do next how you would get out of the lockdown and how you would manage the pandemic for the rest of the year or until a vaccine or treatment came up so it was not clear what the status was what the plan was last thing you did was it was not uh, you took too long to decentralize really at this time the the most effective way of coping with systems like this is to have many different solutions that are tailored to a local context uh, and often times because when you make the policy feedback loop shorter make it closer between the people and the decision makers you are likely to get better outcomes on this we failed so we started off with central width and then as we went realized that oh god decentralization is probably our most powerful tool again so these are the um, sort of overall things that i want to submit for your consideration i see that it's about 6:40 i promised you that i wouldn't talk for too long let me stop myself here and take some questions and maybe at the end if we have time i can uh, make a few points more venkatesh does that make sense yes 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 all right let's look at some questions here we have first question from anas um, sure we talked about the government role in healthcare should it be give a nudge to um, healthcare sector uh, to be um, fledged provider of the healthcare or where do we draw a line between public health and private health great question anas so in economics we have the concept of public goods right and one big argument is that the role of the government is to provide public goods that being said in economics is very clear and precise definition of what is a public good um so a public good is that which is non excludable and that which is non rival meaning that if uh, your consumption of this public good does not leave less of it for somebody else and 
uh, my consumption of it uh, does not lead to uh, does not preclude you from using it so non driven and non exclusive these are the two uh, benchmarks for what a public good is health education things like that in india we often say these are public goods this is not true they are private goods meaning that if i consume medicine you cannot consume that medicine if i take up a hospital bed you cannot take up that hospital bed at the same time however the role then is what is the infrastructure the biggest uh, uh, role of the government that i can see is in financing government takes taxpayer money now how about finding a way to get that money back into people's hands so that's one clear role for the government the second is to think about uh, the overall um, um i'm sorry i lost my train of thought there for a second uh, what is the uh, externalities that come up so for example when when you have tb or when you have uh, the pandemic like uh, coronavirus it means that when i get it my risk of in- infecting another 15 people who had nothing to do with it is very high and in that turn um the kind of infrastructure and the costs that occur to both society as well as the economy are very high so there is an argument to be made that the government has a role to play when there are externalities so these are the two big roles for the government as far as uh, health uh, the health sector however does this mean that the government necessarily needs to run hospitals and healthcare services that answer is not 100% clear for two reasons one is that we know the government does these things really really badly right so we we know this in uh, people uh, there are a number of great studies so for example jishnudas and kartik murli taran uh, studied the healthcare providers and healthcare practitioner behaviors in madhya pradesh and uttar pradesh and they found some very interesting that in government hospitals the time that a doctor gives or one the time that a doctor is present in the hospital is half that he is present in the uh, private sector second is when he does see a patient he gives that much less time to a patient that same doctor runs a private clinic outside the government hospital there he gives double the time right so this in we already know this at least in the market uh, world we understand this as incentives at play and the incentives in the government system are naturally broken so what should the government be doing the government should be thinking about how do i get funding to science how do i get funding to r&d how do i do monitoring how do i do what is called vector monitoring etc right how a disease is spreading what is happening with it where is the uh, locus of it uh, how do i contain how do i think about a testing strategy uh, if it comes down to uh, needing to test 1.3 billion people how am i going to get that happen how am i going to purchase services so that i can make them available for free uh, to the poorest how do i purchase these services from the private sector these are sort of the bigger roles that you want government to be doing anas i hope i answered your question uh there are some more which yeah. is the next question is um from arpit he was asking um pm care fund has been yes. kept out of the scrutiny of the cards and what was the need for separate fund when we have a pm nrs and how how we can actually ensure fiscal accountability of the state oh gosh that's a great question i couldn't agree with you more i don't think there was a need uh, so gandhi i think we've been uh, ravi i think somebody is sharing their screen yeah. um anyway okay. 
I agree with you completely, Arvind. I do not think that uh, there was a need for the PM Cares Fund, uh, in particular because when you set up government relief systems, you cannibalize local aid and relief, right? So every penny that went to the PM Cares Fund was a penny that did not go to the RSS to be able to give food delivery in local areas, or. to uh, christian missionaries or to madrasas or to sikh gurdwaras or to ngos like uh, praja in mumbai so every single penny that you wanted to give for immediate aid and relief um, you have now cannibalized from private philanthropy this is a bad idea in principle and in execution it is a disastrous idea you are exactly right because uh, it is set up as i think a society if i'm not mistaken therefore uh, it is out of the scrutiny of the cag um, and this is you know, just poor fiscal accountability this is poor accountability period uh, what is the need uh, there is no need i i, I don't see the need at least um, and i would have argued that the pm should have taken a stand instead and said listen if if your interest is immediate aid and relief give to your local ngo Give to your local service provider. Don't give it fifteen hundred, two thousand, three thousand miles from your hometown where you're making the donation. Um, and how will you uh, ensure fiscal accountability of PM Cares? I don't think there is a way to be able to, to be fully frank. Yukta has another question. Uh, what is your take on government having access to the public's online data? Isn't that a violation of privacy and freedom? Okay, so this is a great question. I'm assuming you're referring to the Arogya Setu contract tracing app. Um, it's a tricky question. Uh, there are three, four different parts to this, right? One is, well, if we wanted, if the idea was that here is an app that allows you to trace, uh, gives you a full picture of any uh, disease movement, then Arogya Setu would fail. Why will it fail? There are only 300 million smartphones in India. Yes, so just by the math of it, it fails. Second is if you think about this question of uh, government and what you know the Big Brother watching. If we had a privacy law or if we had a constitution, Bengtish, uh, you referred to this earlier on in Swatantrata's uh, principles uh, that the state, which uh, sorry, a constitution which curbs the powers of the state. This is absent in India in many different ways, right? uh the constitution vests way too many powers with the with the state it doesn't put the it doesn't think of this uh, needing to curb and control the state it thinks of uh, curbing the individual more often than not the supreme court which should be uh, the vanguard of this kind of action is usually too um, uh, deferent to the government uh where it where it can increase the powers of the state the court is always you know sort of happy and excited to do it um and therefore we don't have the kinds of checks and balances on state power and therefore it becomes doubly uh, dangerous is it a violation in and of itself people's privacy and freedom i don't think so right because you can choose to not go on to the app that being said because we don't have a law that says what government can and not do with publicly procured data uh we have no control with what the government actually does with the rupees right so it is dangerous and it is uh, uh something that we should all be very very nervous about despite the good intention that that may have spurned the action
Next question is from Ram. Uh, Ram says, "Hey, why don't we um, ask people to ask their questions directly?" Okay. Yeah, Ram. Uh, Ram Ambati. Yeah. Hi. Uh, no, I was just yeah, I was just wondering. Uh, um, for the last couple of decades, investment has gone into tertiary care, largely in the cities, and the focus on uh, primary care and preventive healthcare has been missing. Sure. Yeah. Do you think? Do you foresee down the road this epidemic will bring in a change? Do you think we'll start yeah. focusing so much more on preventive healthcare? One can only hope. I am not a soothsayer, so I certainly can't say what uh, will happen or may happen. What I can say is. this is what should happen uh, particularly you know when we talk about uh, the public goods role of the government uh, and public health versus healthcare i think this uh, focus on prevention focus on uh, monitoring and data is such an incredible part of the government's role as far as the private sector goes my sense is that private sector will do what the incentives align uh, for it to do and if you want to increase the focus on um uh on prevention then you want to also get out of the way of something so for example telemedicine for example um uh, use of uh, well, private uh, uh uh data setups uh e pharmacies all of these come together in some weird way to start to uh, allow for predictive tools to come about to start uh, you know so to to start allowing new types of initiatives that focus on prevention that focus on prediction that focus on uh, vector monitoring right uh, and if that happens i would be very very excited about it okay. i think usha amulya uh, usha amulya would you like to is your question okay maybe not um let's move on then venkatesh kon yeah, has a question think, yeah my question is like that uh, would you speak what? up please venkatesh hello uh, could you speak a little louder yeah. yes yeah your problem with mic uh, uh, actually my question is uh, why the state governments and district governments have they they don't have own strategic plan so they are depending mm-hmm. on central strategic plan only absolutely so, right so what is the problem with that is that uh, process or something like that in no, elaborate uh, it's the epidemic uh, act as well as all of the funding for healthcare comes from the center uh, a lot of the uh, regulatory setup is from the center so we don't really have um you know thus far it's always been so centralized that states and uh, districts have not even realized that they could uh, potentially have their own strategies right one very simple thing is it, even state government i think is much too central a state in india is a fairly large locus if you think about cities a huge mistake that we have made uh, in the way in our design of government is that uh, city governments uh, and particularly the political leaders in city governments have zero power right yeah. so the mayor is not elected uh, or is not it's not the same uh, um 
the way a prime minister the, the kind of responsibility or the kind of accountability we expect from a prime minister the kinds of powers we have assigned to the prime minister or even to the chief minister we have not done so at the city government level right so even if you were to have directly uh, elected mayors or at least mayors who are ceos of a city government then you can you can see that people would be able to demand accountability very close to home and therefore you would be forced to uh, adopt these centralized strategies so my sense is that this has not served us well in this kind of a situation but it's also not profitable right so uh, if mumbai were to become uh, a powerful city state all by itself uh, even within the constitutional realm uh, it wouldn't serve the politics of the state as well as the center very well and this is true of all of the cities of india so we have uh, by uh, not allowing for political power in the cities we have truly uh, shot ourselves in the foot in the law for the long term okay next question jatin okay uh, am i audible to everyone yes okay so i think a very nice presentation so i have a simple question i think you know covid is a very different in terms of uh, the way it has grappled the whole world in a single stroke so i just wanted to understand during you know uh, because you guys keep on um, uh, reviewing a lot of literature so have you come across you know uh, any any country uh, where you can uh, at this point of time you can kind of conclude or maybe slight inferences where you know uh, the policies the healthcare policies of a government in any country and the correlation to the you know response to covid sure so when we uh, when we talk about emerging countries and uh, you know in southeast asia pakistan india nepal bangladesh bhutan and african countries where you know a uh, state is a kind of a sort of paternalistic state sure but, okay but when we look at the developed part of the world uh, and the, the i mean to my mind i don't want to give my perspective at this point of time but just want to learn from you guys uh, the correlation between healthcare policies of a country and their response to covid and you know vis-a-vis um, uh, -vis sure. other countries so your comments on this thank you sure uh that's a tough question jatin because uh, if you think about it it's too short to uh set these kinds of correlations up that being said there are a few features of countries that have done well in uh, dealing with uh, covid or in responding to covid a lot of people speak about you know sort of south korea singapore and sweden i don't hold those up to be uh, you know sort of doing remarkably because we've seen ebbs and dips the one country though i do think that has done a consistent uh, and beautiful job of managing uh, and both being prompt being responsive being communicative uh, being ahead of the curve in their planning the one country i think that has done a bang up job is germany and germany has done a few things uh, differently and a few things right one like i said it got rich so that's a smart thing to do uh, it meant that they had far greater control on many other things second is that the german healthcare market is one of the uh, is the prime example of light but tight in that um, the regulation is very very strong so you cannot mess around with a regulation but regulations are not unreasonably uh, heavy in their compliance demands uh, they are scientifically oriented 
they are protocol oriented but not risk averse so for example if you wanted to get a new drug through injer the kind of regime that you have around it or you wanted to set up a new hospital so it's a lot more friendly to private uh, uh, initiative in the area of health uh, so that's the second thing that i think they got right the third is of course in responding to the pandemic uh immediately the first thing the germany did was to allow private sector testing uh and to set up ways in which the government would fund for people to get uh, tested for covid right so i find that to be quite remarkable that they were able to be able to go on days uh, day one right so you had your procurement systems that were set up and operating beautifully uh you have your accountability fiscal accountability systems that are set up you have of course the regulatory framework that's already there you know so many of these things that we we were not able to take advantage of here they were able to take advantage so my sense again is uh they are probably going to be able to uh, reduce the hit of the pandemic um far more than many other countries both because uh germany also has simultaneously set up sort of economic resilience for itself right uh, it is one of the freest markets in the world it has one of the most uh, uh, uh sort of governments that is very oriented towards um the public good story towards the um minimum uh, state but maximum governance type story so my sense is that uh, at least from what i have seen in testing numbers as well as uh, um uh, scale and depth of the hit I think Germany has done a phenomenal job. Uh the the jury is still out on what is going to happen with Sweden. Uh it is still out on what is happening in Singapore as well as in uh, South Korea. Though my sense is that uh, what is common at least about some of the East Asian successes is their governments are also very strong arm governments and they're also very tiny countries. So what works for them doesn't naturally work for us. So these are some of my uh sort of bigger uh, observations around what is happening uh in uh, global patterns around i hope that's helpful yeah hi vikas can you go for the question let's go vikas are you there yeah yeah i'm, I'm here sir yeah yeah go ahead with you yeah i observed that things are getting too centralized during this lockdown right yeah except for states like kerala so everywhere we see all together centralization happening sure but when things are approached in a decentralized manner i feel it will be a lot easier to handle i abs- i couldn't agree with you more you're absolutely right and i think that realization is hitting now uh, so from what i understand most states uh some of even done it at the city level have started to set up the lockdown committees and these are set up with very smart people who have thought about these questions a lot and their whole task is for a particular small geography how do we get back to life for normal uh so i couldn't agree with you more that uh, decentralization is probably the right way not just in terms of uh, pandemic dealing but also in terms of relief rehabilitation uh sort of emergency response all of those things uh we're probably best place to tackle it when we decentralize like yeah, this is another question yeah uh, the current situation is more than a speed breaker to the economy right yes so it's almost like coming to a halt right now so how do we take it forward and they say that a crisis is an opportunity to relook at our things the path and make some Changes which generally we couldn't make it right. 
Right. So, what do you think our role would be as civil society and those wow. who are into public policy like that? What is the Great directional question. change that we should look forward to? Great question. Um, I think several different things, right? One is uh, specifically on public investment. What do we spend government money on? Meaning taxpayer money on. Government money is the wrong term. What do we spend taxpayer money on? right so just rethinking the way we do our budget uh, rethinking the apportioning of money towards different uh, asks uh, from the government i think this is a uh, problem number one that we need to quickly solve or at least quickly create some momentum around cleaning up this is submission one submission two is that uh, uh, for a long time since 1991 in some way we have stopped thinking about prosperity we have stopped thinking about the path to prosperity from private enterprise right by our private enterprise uh, how do we make life a little bit easier for all firms be it informal firms one single person firms be it large agglomerations so i think that's second and there are some uh, uh, indications or opportunities particularly with the uncertainty around uh, china's uh, role there may be some opportunity for us to step in and do some of the manufacturing things right so i think that's a second thing for us to get uh, to start getting right quickly uh, the third thing is uh, to my mind exactly what we just discussed right decentralization meaning yeah. cities uh, uh, cities for us how do we get cities uh, people in cities uh, to have accountability from their municipal corporations how do we get elected leaders in these cities uh, to be the ceos of these cities rather than uh, bureaucrats appointed by the state government i think that's really really important um, and related to that is also how we classify a city right today it's profitable for most places in india to remain villages because more money flows to villages and there is somehow a little bit more power uh, power in panchayati raj institutions than there is in uh, urban local body institutions uh, so i think that's really critical so these are three big things that i would say and there are many many different line items within this right yeah yeah and one more thing is that any emergency Sorry, generally could be quickly give a... someone else a chance please yeah yeah yeah, yeah. thank is that you so okay? much and we'll come back to you yeah um, thank you so much i think usha has been working uh, ask wanting to ask this for a while uh, she says i would love to know your view on the question of patent pooling what is your take on patent pooling Uh, patent pooling is it a viable uh, given the necessity of vaccine development would public private partnership work or is it anti competitive and dissuades innovation in the long term usha unfortunately i am not an expert on uh, patents and intellectual property rights so i want to excuse myself from trying to answer that question i think there are some very smart people who are writing about the subject and i would encourage you to read them rather than to uh, ask me so i i know you've been waiting to ask this question for a while and i apologize for disappointing you uh there's a question from priya lakshmi priya lakshmi do you want to go yes ma'am uh, my question is how uh, does growth tradition and conventional medicine uh you know a play a role in such a uh, thing uh, in such a pandemic situation given that uh, we are using a hydrochloroxyquin for the as prescribed by the icmr so no, what is 
Hello. Hello. Yeah. Am I audible? Now you are. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I just wanted to know what what is the role of traditional and you know conservative medicine uh, going to uh, play a role in a pandemic situation like this? Because HCQS was prescribed and certain uh, traditional antibiotics which are used to treat respiratory diseases sure. were prescribed. So how are we work going to work on the traditional medicine, the Siddha, Ayurveda, homeopathies, and Unani? And if the government is investing. uh what kind of uh, impact it could bring the research and development in uh, traditional medicine could be, uh, you know bring and be of use to us in such situations in the future i understand uh prelakshmi do i want to uh, make the question a little bit sharper if i may yes ma'am uh i think we should distinguish between modern medicine and traditional medicine So when you say hydrochloroquine or any of those kinds of uh, uh, drugs, or for that matter, antibiotics, they are modern medicine, not traditional medicine. Yes, yes, yes. Right. So we're talking about traditional medicine. Yes. Yes. Great. Okay. So uh, I, again, I tend to be a little bit diffident about saying that this is the right answer or that these are the prospects. I want to instead use an example of the kinds of things that we may want to think about. um the example is from tb uh, how we have dealt with tb or how we've been trying to deal with tb so over the last uh, many years uh, since almost the 1960s 70s india has run a tb program right uh, of different kinds of tb strains of different uh, uh, and it has really struggled to get tb under control that being said in the last uh, decade or so we've made some very interesting uh, strides on controlling tb So the first thing that ended up happening was that uh, those who exhibited symptoms of TB would go to uh, traditional medicine practitioners or even their local pharmacies and say, "I have a cough. I'm struggling to breathe. Will you prescribe something?" And there was a lot of over-the-counter prescription. What ended up happening, or false prescription. Um, what ended up happening because of this was that you started to see the spread of the multi. Uh, uh multi resistant strain of um uh, of tb uh, mdr which is really what uh, which means that it it's much harder to control and much harder to treat right this was a disaster that was happening so what did government do government along with a number of different philanthropists and um, public health experts started to think about this question and they said look if people are going to the pharmacy and are going to their local uh, well traditional medicine practitioner first why don't we co-opt them why don't we bring uh, at the time they start to set up the ayush and things like that why don't we bring ayush practitioners do a quick training with them set up incentives for the right kind of treatment and referral and bring all of these guys into the system so it was a very nice way of using behavior change uh, understand or nudge understanding together with modern medicine understand so nobody was arguing that we could cure tb using traditional medicine but the, the the sense was that you could certainly improve um uh, bringing people into the net of both discovery as well as treatment if you co-opted traditional practitioners so are you understanding so that for me has been a very powerful example of how you can work with traditional medicine in order to uh, you know sort of um, um to deal with these kinds of problems in the future so that's one part the second part of it is on the prevention side 
one part of prevention is the vector and you know sort of spotting the disease and understanding uh, the causes of it but the other is also this uh, under appreciated part around nutrition around um, uh, you know sort of uh, um, traditional additives to food that have a remarkable impact uh, i think the government is now making an enormous amount of investment in getting a lot of these traditional practices uh, in the sci- in the modern scientific um, uh, lens meaning that can we do randomized control trials to see the impact of turmeric uh, or curcumin uh, on health on um, infection prevention or infection reduction uh, so those kinds of things do uh, they have a remarkable benefit and this is why i think that government funding uh, to the right kind of uh, to all kinds of science can be very beneficial i hope that answers your question yes thank you ma'am great okay any other questions that we have missed we have one more um from rusha i think it's the same question no on patent pooling uh oh. no she actually asked that right there's another one uh okay usha since your mic isn't working uh what should be the best policy practices to be adopted by civil society and individuals to keep a check on sur- on the surge in domestic violence oh that's really interesting again i am not a um uh, i have not studied this space but i you know as a as a human being i can think about some ideas and um a few of them are um you know see something say something right i, I don't know if you're familiar with this phrase but this started off in the world of policing and it started off in the world of uh, uh, uh terrorism prevention right so you'll see in a lot of places your local police will have these um, blasts saying if you see something please report it right so i think that's one way to keep your eyes open and this is by no means to say that you should report every incident and uh, because there are there are complex dynamics at play and i don't know what the repercussions on human beings tend to be but if you do see something say something is a is a powerful uh, idea to my mind the second thing is also to be able to find ways of giving mental health counseling uh, a lot of organizations have started uh, to bring in mental health practitioners uh, to counsel their teens uh, to be able to talk to people to guide them through this lonely and alienated time uh, to be able to provide a safe space for conversation so these are things that i know that private enterprises and private organizations have taken on and i think for our own organizations uh, these are uh, sound practices there are a few practitioners that i know that have been helping with organizations and if you are interested in this i'm happy to make a connection with that okay. thank you bona there is one more question mohit wants to ask mohit you can go ahead mohit are you there yes sir thank you okay we are going to observe a large fall in the purchase power or uh, demand in the market in future course yeah. of action so even if we start uh, our firms so they will not be able to employ the large amount of uh, their labor to re- retake them so what is possible course of action to cope with this sure. kind of sure um you know i think last week i did a, a another talk on this and i i can see the point of it i am not as pessimistic i think firms tend to respond faster and uh, at bigger scale than we anticipate 
but sure there is a large income shock particularly on uh, the poorest and what can we do to make their lives or smoothen their uh, uh, income flows a little bit uh, i think there is merit in thinking through options and one option that seems to me to be powerful is the option of unconditional cash transfers i have had the chance to work on this a little bit uh, over the last few years in different uh, 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 spheres with different governments, and these are remarkably powerful ways. One in order to uh, one in alleviating sort of uh, immediate cash flow needs, and two in being able to uh, allow for demand spurting and things like that. Um, so I think that cash transfers are uh, something that we should be considering very strongly and very quickly. I know that government is already doing this for certain particular sectors. My sense is instead of uh, trying to be targeted. we should be uh, either universal or pick the largest targeting scheme that we have uh, in my mind the largest targeting scheme that we have at the moment is the national food security data uh, database uh, that allows us to do um, uh, more broad based uh, targeting uh, and of course if you wanted to do something universal you've got the uh, aadhar um, setup that allows you to do it of course this is not to say that every single person who needs it will get it because there are problems of inclusion and exclusion uh that being said i think in this time it is hard for us to fix uh things that we have not fixed before right all we can do is uh, sort of improve some of the accountability systems now designing such an unconditional cash transfer program is really hard work um some of this work has been done before because of the uh jandhan aadhar mobile linkages but it is not without its flaws uh, a lot of the times we have found in previous uh, cash transfer programs that uh, money was sent from the government but people reported that they had no idea of the money right so it was going into some bank account the bank account was linked to this particular person's aadhar but we don't know what happened in the meantime so getting these fixing these systems are important but also in crisis it is very hard to correct systems uh, so that's one way of thinking about the other is to go back to this decentralization uh the 15 finance commission has been deliberating and thinking about uh, ways to devolve financing um this is something that they can think about even more seriously uh, they already agreed to sending money directly to cities and to panchayati raj institutions now we have to see if they can increase the amount of funds that are available and the ways in which uh, these governments can choose to disperse it to all of them, all of these people so i think there is some merit in thinking about this in general though i am not enthusiastic about the idea of universal basic income but i think as a temporary stock cap measure uh it's worth thinking about but there is nothing so permanent as a temporary government scheme this always worries me i am nervous about uh, assigning such kinds of loans to the government because i know that it will they will never really see it so that's sort of my long and short on uh how can we help uh with some of these transition issues okay huna i have one more question from manasa um sure. how can the government utilize this opportunity to record the database of migrant labor right considering don't come considering they don't compose voting population in general how to incentivize the government to ensure their social security in the future sure that's a tough question um you know i don't quite know 
uh, I'm torn about this question because on the one hand uh, having a list of migrants can help uh, disperse need on the other hand having a list of migrants makes it very easy for a government to harass and to extort because of the whole narrative of you're an outsider i don't know if i want to assign that kind of power um as far as you know sort of social security goes do remember that you you do have social security where you are registered right so whether it is in terms of uh, um, ration and pds whether it's in terms of a number of other government schemes and uh, my sense is if you are a migrant by and large you have a family somewhere uh, and that uh, somebody is able to get benefits from this now the question is what is fungible in kind benefits are not fungible cash on the other hand is uh, so if you were to be able to convert many of the existing schemes into cash it would take care of some of these migrant social security concerns that even when they are away from their home they have the ability to access that that's one way to think about it i think vikas has another question vikas yeah generally this is no less than emergency right i don't know generally generally in this situations the tendency is to shift authoritarian type yeah. generally the space for democracy will be shrinking during these times yes so in as civil society organizations how do we protect that shrinking of democratic space well because that critical dialogue and discussions during these times generally are not encouraged sure that you so, know what is your take on that that's a tough question to answer right because it requires sort of crystal ball gazing i don't quite know whether we will go down that path or not uh that being said i think what we should be reflecting on is let's look around the world by and large those places that have institutionalized and made their democracy strong not just their democracy their republic strong uh they tend to survive these kinds of uh blips right so do we for example even for a minute worry that uh, germany will lapse back into authoritarianism or even the united states will lapse back into authoritarianism the answer is not quite we worry about places like india which as it is we are constantly on shaky ground right so my sense is that this is the long game so we don't play for the next epidemic we play for the next 70 years so we've got to do everything that we can do to get institutions right so that the next time there is a situation like this there won't be centralization or that there will be options out of centralization I realize that I'm not giving you a very clear answer to your question and that's because this is something that's on my mind and uh I'm not entirely clear that there is a silver bullet. The one silver bullet though is uh the creation of uh political power at the city and urban local body level. I think this is really really important. This person power allows the central government to become less relevant. Uh, also the state government to become less relevant and over the long term this is a good idea as far as um, the space to dissent and criticize goes i don't know the mature government should take all opportunity for criticism and say we will learn from this and get better and be more accountable and transparent but 
where institutions don't already allow for this it's a disaster so for example it's very hard for us today in india forget the government to even criticize supreme court's orders right because we can be held for contempt of yeah. this is absurd we should get rid of these kinds of powers so there is you know sort of these these things worry me i think our core institutional design there's no point blaming a person or a political party or a, a government at this point in time all governments when they get the opportunity will do this right not just governments but any time you give excessive power an institution will take it and play with it so how do we limit those that's the question on my mind i don't have a great um uh you know sort of policy prescription on this uh, i think one thing that we should be thinking about is the um uh the anti defection law uh, that's one way of making you know sort of politics a little bit more real and salient Can we do that in this time? Of course not. Pona, we have a last question. Sure. Yeah. So intervention by the Supreme Court dictating the conduct of the test for the free and rollback was ill-advised. Yeah. Mr. Chairman states there is no such a thing as a free lunch, yeah. as well as all entities work on incentives. So how can we? how can different institutions work to ensure such a testing in time this kind of testing time so let me uh, i don't know if i fully understand is your think, question narrowly think, about testing um i think it's the question about um how can different institutions work to ensure um we don't have such a free lunches during these kind Such of time. free lunches right yeah. right right so i think some free lunches are better than other free lunches what do i mean i mean if if i'm giving a free lunch packet via the government i think it's a bad idea but if i'm not messing with prices and i'm giving you say a voucher for example to either buy the food or to uh, buy yourself a test uh that the private sector prices as it prices everything else uh i think that is less evil than um uh, say free testing or free food or free midday meals or etc 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 right which is why i think that uh uh how can different institutions work together uh, i don't think different institutions can work together what you want is for different institutions to do what they are good at right so you want the private sector to be doing uh prices you want private sector to be doing demand supply matching this is what the private sector does let them do it so don't mess with the procurement of testing don't monopolize um uh, the supply of healthcare don't monopolize when the vaccine becomes available don't monopolize supply of the vaccine uh don't uh, monopolize the drugs when they come out um the, you know sort of it's not so much about everybody working together but it's about each person doing what they are best at in one thing that government can be really really good at is creating the enabling environment right uh, for the private sector to do this demand supply matching what does the government need to do for this a few things one is to get its procurement policy right two is to figure out how it will allow for um the poorest who will need it and remember the poorest need it that is one part of it but other people get infected so it is also necessary to protect the other people so how do we solve the externalities 
there is a role for government if the government can figure out a mechanism to give vouchers for testing i think that's a great idea the third is um um like i said the second is procurement uh the third is uh, decentralization of course allowing for local institutions to be able to deliver aid and relief and to able uh, to be able to manage their spread and their um uh, uh, vector control themselves so i think this the, i'm i'm not a big proponent of the different institutions working together there is a reason where we have a doctrine of separation of powers uh institutions are not supposed to work in fact a little bit of a healthy tension between them is a good vektesh i think there's one more question do we have time for it or should we move go on go ahead no problem no problem okay. um i think this is from the other vektesh vektesh do you want to say your question out yeah yes ma'am actually uh we can't hear you sorry ha huh? one is like uh, if the people are not ready to share their information how then how do the policy makers build up generate new policies so that is one question one more thing is decentralization if people people are not capable to have, to have the power so it gives a adverse effect also like in, in earlier governments of the corruption and uh, the education of the peoples who are ruling so these are the factors to give the powers also so do sure. you understand my question yeah uh, so you have two questions one is uh, if people are not sharing data how will the government do things like cash transfers correct yeah yeah like uh, if okay. some people are arguing okay. about aarogya uh, setu also tracking system or something like that sure uh, sure against privacy yeah, sure So that's one let me tackle that first right now the issue is not that people are not willing to share the data the issue is people are worried about how the data will be used right so that's the problem to solve if people are worried about that issue how can we alleviate that concern and the way to alleviate that concerns is the concern is to put constraints on what the government can and not do with the data that is being shared right how do we do this this is really tricky this is not it's not easy to write a privacy law it's not easy to come up with a privacy uh, management and monitoring framework right so who will watch the government who will monitor who will control who will check what kind of checks will you put on the state so that's the problem that we need to solve not so much the uh, worry about the policy makers the policy makers really care about people if they really want to make lives better for people and they think data is the way to do it let them sign on to a privacy law first so i think that's important um as far as your second question goes uh on decentralization so what happens if unworthy people uh you know sort of come up this is true at the state level this is true at the central level as well right yeah so why is it any different for decentralization in fact the advantage of decentralization is that you're much closer to me if you are my mayor and i am able to between you and me is just 1 lakh people versus between you and me is 1.3 billion people there is an yeah. account there's a system that naturally lends itself to get receiving and acting upon public feedback therefore the dangers of what you were saying uh, say for example corrupt tendencies the worst of society illeducated uh, uh, illiterate people coming in possessing power it won't matter as much 
because there is a feedback loop right uh, and that feedback loop does not exist when you are very far away from the power so that's my sort of way of looking at it so i don't think the dangers go away when they uh, get centralized right um, but when they get decentralized you get these opportunities to correct Thanktesh I think we're all out of okay. questions now finally yes <laughs> thank you so much and i'm going to ask you one more question it's, it's sure. not about the topic but um most of the participants are um largely involved with um uh, civil societies and okay. the local policy areas they work with politicians and uh, sometimes they work sure. with uh, youth organizations and these days actually um interest change towards policy making Sure. So, how, um, what kind of opportunities CCS can actually have these these days for young people who is actually interested in policy making? Sure. Research or uh, in terms of fundraising or program making and any any other kind of opportunity. What kind of opportunities CCS can actually provide for these people? Oh, great question. Um, so a couple of different things, right? One is that of course CCS is not a funding organization. so it's unable to provide funds for action what it can do however is if there are areas that ccs has a long history it has an incredible network so if there are connections to be made and facilitations that we can do uh, we are always happy to do that so that's one you know sort of help for grassroots organizations to give you an example uh, in andhra pradesh i know a number of you are uh, uh, based out of hyderabad in hyderabad they have a pretty strong network of uh, friends and people who are linked into the uh, political slash public policy units uh, for particular questions we are more than happy to make these connections happen um, this is true of many different places in india so if it is situation specific we can check and see who do we know uh, which parliamentarian uh, do we know what lo- what person in local government or in state government what relationship can we make so that's one thing that we are more than uh, happy to second is in terms of training uh, and anas can back me up on this ccs has of course done a number of different policies uh, policy training programs i think arpit has just written something about it uh, we our flagship program is the 2 to 3 to 4 sometimes uh, day i policy program which is usually an in person program a policy training program we do uh, these days we have switched to uh, digital delivery of the same program it's now called e policy in fact just this afternoon i took a lecture at e policy uh, so anas can uh, let you know when the next uh, application round for e policy so please sign up we also do the these programs in partnership with institutions so if for example you're at a, a, a civil society organization and you want to run one such program for your organization we're always happy to tailor customize and and deliver Uh, we do that with universities we do that with uh, political parties we do that with uh, uh, think tank with other think tanks we do it with uh, particular industry bodies or firms uh, and and with civil society groups so please let us know and we're happy to run these programs for you so that's a second resource the third resource is uh, ccs also incubated uh, the indian school of, uh, for public policy ispp i uh, based in delhi and in fact the uh, second round i don't know if applications are still open but uh, ispp.org.in uh, please check it out because ispp runs a one year program a public policy program uh, and it's very very highly rated 
the first cohort is just going to graduate uh, and applications if i'm not mistaken are open for the second cohort uh, so please do check out ispp as so that's the third big opportunity that i can think about um in terms of research and working with ccs or working at ccs um we're always looking for talented people to support us in research our research is data driven our research is uh, um we try to be um, sort of very very particular in investigation in understanding the root cause uh, so we love engaging with uh, folks who have grassroots knowledge and experience uh and you're always welcome uh, to apply to any of the open positions uh, at ccs.in um and i'm always looking for exciting new people to uh, collaborate with oh lastly uh for students among us uh ccs also runs a summer internship program called researching reality uh, again in the past it has been a field research uh, program run out of delhi uh this year however we are moving it to a digital format Uh, and the applications we are accepting applications currently uh, anas is that right anas as uh, anas anas is not available right now okay no problem no problem uh, so uh, you can reach out again via venkatesh to anas and he can connect you to the team that's running uh, researching reality this year uh, and uh, come work with us anytime yeah and um i myself actually graduated of high policy for like but it's long back i think like 6 7 years back yeah i think uh, one of my first um introduction to the public policy was actually gone through um high policy and it was really really um uh, interesting program especially those who are not from economics and political science background because i'm a tech graduate i have no idea what is economics is but um this course is actually really really um helpful and also we did um run couple of i policies back in hyderabad few years back i think um 2016 or 17 uh the response from the participants mostly tech guys they, it was very very um very very positive i yeah. definitely uh, recommend you to uh check it out the course and um definitely you will go through um dig deeper into the public policy space great um, venkatesh may i add one quick thing sure 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 that's okay uh, many of you are interested in the response to covid uh, i did a talk last weekend and i think that's available on youtube stream streaming that specifically focused on vouchers for testing and on cash transfers how do you design these programs so please feel free to watch it and i'm happy to answer any questions sure thank you so much for joining us today <laughs> and um i would be able to um send an email uh, one of my team members will send uh, with the details um uh, to contact ccs and also some other resources to explore um resources on covid-19 and also uh, how you can actually build a career and uh, public policy and also um various uh, websites that can actually uh, be resourceful to you guys to explore um various current affairs and uh, in terms of how policy can actually deal with it thank you so much and um we will we will be having another one um next week 
uh, we will announce um, day after tomorrow and i hope uh, we would like to see uh, we, would, we would love to have you all of you uh, there and exploring together how we can actually uh, fight the covid-19 and thank you so much bona for um coming as sharing your experiences and um and providing a long support uh, since many years and you would like to have um in, uh, run some some other programs in future in collaboration with ccs and also other networks call me back to speak i'd love to interact again thank you so much have a good evening uh, see you thank you everybody stay safe stay negative thank you so much bye 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 thank you all